Welcome to the Traveling Image Makers Podcast, your source of inspiration about travel photography. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride as we bring you on a tour around the world with our guests. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Traveling Image Makers Podcast. Uh, this time again, it's just me, Ugo Che, doing the interview today because uh, Ralph, our co-host, uh, is traveling to New York at this time. So he will be back uh, with uh, next week on the, on the show. Uh, so without much further ado, let me introduce our guest for this week. And our guest is Daniel Da Silva, who is a director, photographer, public speaker, activist, and writer who specializes in sustainable development and psychology. Her main focus is communicating the extraordinary efforts of people around the world working to solve the most challenging problems. Her deepest passions are conserving parklands, fostering equality, and empowering ordinary people to find their power. Danielle is the founder and CEO of Photographers Without Borders, a co-founder of the Sumatran Wildlife Sanctuary, and is also on the board of the Dandelion Initiative in Toronto. Danielle is comfortable in English, French, Spanish, Italian, Portuguese, some Swahili, and Indonesian, and can read and write Arabic. And she's hoping to familiarize herself with Hindi and ASL as well. She has a Bachelor of Science degrees in Conservation Biology, Psychology and Global Studies with honors from the University of Western Ontario, as well as an MSc in Environment and Development from the London School of Economics. Wow, quite an impressive resume, Danielle, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for having me. Thank you for uh, for being here. It's a, it's a great pleasure. Uh, I always love when I can... Uh, Talk to guests uh, about topics that go beyond just uh, tips, tricks, uh, photography gear and travel and so on and go a bit more in depth about uh, uh, issues that should uh, worry all of us. So sustainability and equality are the very, very important, uh, at least to me. So really help, really happy to have you here today. So you're based in Toronto, right? I am indeed based yeah. in Toronto. How are, how are things up there? Is it cold yet? You know what? It's been pretty cold, but yeah. now it's getting really nice. Everything's thawing out, even though it's, you know, end of January, which is kind of odd, but. Good. <laughs> Good. So yes. uh, please tell, tell more about uh, the story of your life beyond what is in your, um, in your resume, especially how you've decided to become so involved with issues of conservation and equality and everything else that's occupies your mind these days? Wow, that is a big question. Mm. <laughs> and I think that, um, thank you for the amazing introduction and thank you for uh, the question. Um, for me, everything starts from personal experience and everything that I do is a reflection of personal experience um, and just my wish um, to, for what I want to see in the world. So... Uh, you know, I didn't have the most idyllic upbringing. Uh, there was a lot of strife in my, in my, in my family home in my childhood. So, and a lot of it had to do with, uh, racial tension because I had a, 
mixed family um, in terms of their ethnic background and in terms of their religion. So there was a lot of conflict back and forth um, throughout my upbringing, a lot of, you know, quarreling about money and finances and just all these different things, you know, that kind of make you think about a lot of different issues at a young age. Um, so for me, again, like it all had to do with, you know, finding out who I was in the world and what part I wanted to play as well. And, you know, I just have a very, a lot of people say I have a very strong moral compass. I have a very strong sense of justice. And for me, I think it's, it causes me more anxiety not to do something about, uh, what's happening in our world or around us. Um, and uh, rather than just, you know, kind of standing by idly. So that's really the basis form the basis of who I am and why I do what I do. Um, and so everything that I do, I'm trying to give back, but in a way that, uh, is sustainable at the same time. And so, uh, be that not only in terms of the environment, but also financially. Um, so all of the decisions I've made, all of the, the things I do are all kind of, um, manifestations of that. I don't know if that's specific enough. <laughs> no, that's that's fine. I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, I, I don't want the, the exact details, but uh, yeah, it's interesting that it's uh, from a very personal story, um, the person that you that you have become. Of course, like everyone, everyone else is the result of their upbringing, and in your case, it uh, it, it brought you to to do the things that you are doing. So in a way, we, we should be thankful for <laughs> the, the problems, the difficulties we you had. In a way, I know it sounds strange, but yeah. Well, I agree absolutely. I mean, I think that our our difficulties are what give us um, kind of that impetus to to do something, you know, and move through the world differently than we might have um, otherwise. So, yeah. and we all have to deal with you know trauma and, and different things at different parts of our lives, and so. You know, sometimes when you have these experiences early on, it can just, you know, really shape, I think, who you are. So these experiences brought you to found at what I think is a relatively young age, uh, an organization uh, like Photographers Without Borders. Uh, can you tell us more about Photographers Without Borders and its program? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So Photographers Without Borders, uh, we aim to be a the leading community of storytellers in the world um, that is connecting photographers and videographers to uh, the important grassroots NGOs, nonprofits, you know, different causes and organizations around the world that are addressing issues that you'd find listed in the UN Sustainable Development Goals. So things like poverty, um, you know, water crises, um, indigenous rights, human rights, um, all kinds of things that, you know, are impact pe impacting people every day all around the planet. So our, our, I, our biggest goal is to address these issues through documentation and documenting them and bringing them to people's awareness and also using the images and the stories um, and the videos to make actual change, to actually contribute to, um, you know, physical things like sanctuaries and, you know, sewing machines for women in India and things like that. Uh, can you give some maybe some concrete example of somebody who is uh, taking part in this program, some uh, uh, organization they're working for, what they're doing there, something a bit more concrete? Yeah, sure. For, for example, um, I, well, every year we have over 60 photographers and storytellers going to document 60 different causes. So that we have a lot of 
projects going on all at once. So at any one time, um, we can have a photographer, you know, in Cambodia documenting, uh, for example, this organization. We had Charlotte Hodges documenting um, epic arts in Cambodia. And it was, uh, I've seen some of the images that have come back and they're really, really powerful. And so that organization um, uses the arts um, to help people with different abilities and, uh, you know, uh, mental and physical disabilities. Um, and so her images are basically showing the world um, what, what this organization is doing. And while we're not, while we're raising awareness about what this organization does and hopefully we can raise money, we're also, um, inspiring people around the world to say, hey, if someone can start an organization like this to address this issue in Cambodia, why can't I do it here? And so um, that's an example. Another example, a good example of uh, a project that we've done is we had a photographer named Gita Defoe. Um, she came with me actually to Sumatra in 2015 and uh so her her assignment was to document this organization called orangutan information center and the organization uh specializes in rescuing uh orangutans that are in situations of conflict um so i'm not sure if you know but the orangutan is uh critically endangered um, and sumatra is one of the is the only place in the world where you can find orangutan elephant rhino and tiger in the same space. So this organization um, specializes in rescuing orangutans when they come into conflict with humans, um, be it because orangutans are coming into uh, palm oil plantations and, you know, disturbing the peace or um, because they're being trafficked or kept as pets illegally. Um, and so her job was to document the work that this organization is doing. And so she uh, basically goes to Sumatra you know, um, we organize a trip for her, um, like with all the logistics, all the coordination, um, is done on our end. And so she flies to Sumatra. She, um, is greeted by the organization, um, members. Uh, so some of the staff members there at the airport, and then she's kind of given an orientation around the local, uh, city and to the office of the organization and to some of the other staff, um, and then, you know, from there, it's like a jam-packed itinerary of documenting all of the things that they do, accompanying them on a rescue um, and doing and, and, and meeting a lot of the people, taking a lot of portraits of people who are who are basically everyday heroes who are doing this work. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I guess this is a way for photographers and video makers to... Um, change the world for, for the better, right? And it's also a way for organizations to uh, have somebody document their, the work that they are doing and make it visible. And as you said, inspire other people to take those causes at heart, right? So, but yeah. um, as a photographer, let's say I, I would like to, to apply for, for being part of your program. And first of all, mm -hmm. my question would be uh, how to apply for. And the second question would be, um, what are benefits do you think somebody, a photographer or a videographer, would get from this experience? Um, my, that's a big question. So first of all, to apply for a project. Um, so the first thing is to become a member. So we, when someone becomes a member, they get a portfolio review. So it's quite a lengthy process. We um, review every applicant's uh, portfolio and then we will, our program manager 
Mac. So we'll set up a, a call to speak with them and kind of review everything that they've gone through um, just to see, you know, what this person is like, what they, what their aspirations are as a photographer, what they're trying to accomplish, you know, what are their language capabilities, you know, just to basically get an idea of who we have in our membership. And then we try our best to then match them up to the projects that we have available. Um, so because we have so many members and only 60 to 60 plus projects a year, it is somewhat competitive. Uh, however, there are many other benefits to becoming a member. So whether or not you get on a project right away, um, there's a lot of other things to do and a lot of other ways to, to be involved. And sorry, what was the second part of your question? Yeah, what, what do you think would be the benefits? I mean, of course, I don't uh, expect yes. uh, uh, the photographers or the videographers to be handsomely paid for this. mildly. <laughs> uh, so that there must be other intangible benefits in any yeah so like many other without borders kind of opportunities um these are volunteer opportunities and they aren't paid so obviously uh the reason why i started this program is because personally for me as a photographer i found many benefits from doing projects like this and it wasn't just about you know where i wanted my career to go but it was about Finding ways to keep myself inspired and also just having that inner drive. Like I knew I just had an inner drive to want to do things and there weren't many opportunities like this available. I had to really, you know, fight for them or um, really search for them. So for me, I just I knew just from my own surroundings that there was a need for this kind of thing you know there's lots of opportunities to go on a trip to anywhere really I mean there's so many travel companies but not many opportunities for photographers to really give back you know there's lots of opportunities for nurses and doctors and teachers and lawyers to give back but there's not many opportunities for photographers so for this I think what it does is it gives a chance for photographers to give back um, for some to maybe even leave a legacy you know to to become connected to something larger than themselves um, a lot of our photographers end up staying you know, connected to the causes that they've served for many years afterwards. And so they continue to give back and continue to raise awareness and raise money and, you know, contribute to these causes. So for me, I think it's really that sense of connection um, that people are looking for, at least from what I'm observing. And uh, I think it also, for people that want to get into this field, it really gives you a an incredible and unique hands-on experience with working in the field because there are just so many challenges and so many ethical nuances to be aware of um, that are extremely important, especially for us. And so I think it's a great way to get more experience in this area and to um, have more projects under your belt so that you can go ahead responsibly into the world and do these kinds of things on your own as well. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I mean, I, I was not aware of any other organization doing this kind of this kind of work. As you said, it's pretty unique. Yeah, there's Doctors Without Borders, which allows doctors and nurses to to, to contribute, but not much for photographers and, and videographers. So I think it's it's very worthwhile with what you're doing and, and you said you have only 60 projects but to me it's it's an amazing number it's uh, it's a lot <laughs> it, of is, it is a lot <laughs> <laughs> we we had uh, we, we mentioned on this uh, on this podcast in a previous episodes uh, um, the giving lens which is an organization which is somewhat doing something similar but i mean what the giving lens is doing is organizing tours which are kind of a mix between a vacation workshop and 
they, they have an important aspect of giving back to the communities they visit, but the main focus is not is not on that. What I see your your focus is really uh, it's not a vacation, right? It's uh, it's real uh, volunteer work. So yeah, it's definitely not, to, not a vacation. I mean, I'm just saying <laughs> hi to my friends at the Giving Lens. I'm not don't want to. They're my this. friends too, by the way. I yeah. actually have some friends there too, so I, I love the work that they do, and yeah, I think absolutely. it's great work. So just yeah. just a shout out. <laughs> but um, we offer something similar. It's called PWB School, um, and that's just a. It's more of a training mm-hmm. ground for photographers. So if there are people who want to. I mean, to do one of these projects on your own still takes quite a bit of experience and, and aptitude as a photographer. So for people who maybe don't have that experience or um, want to learn more about storytelling and how to actually tell a story with their images um, or become just a better documentary photographer, we offer these um, like workshops under the PWB school brand on our website. And so it's similar but very different um, mm-hmm. at the same time, um, more of a training ground for photographers. Uh, yeah, I saw on your website a couple of uh, uh, workshops that you have planned. Can you maybe tell us more about them? What what destinations are you planning yeah, to absolutely. go to? So we're planning to go to Uzbekistan in May, uh, mm. Mongolia in August, uh, Sumatra in September, and India in November. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the India and Sumatra projects are connected to um, two different NGOs, one in India, one in Sumatra, and they're very incredible NGOs and just amazing experiences overall um, because they give you that hands-on experience working with an NGO. Um, whereas Mongolia and Uzbekistan, um, those are a little bit shorter, just tailored toward people who um, are looking for both that both the giving back and community-oriented experience, but it's not connected to a specific NGO um, and it's more so just like on the adventure kind of side of things yeah so the, the, the people joining your those programs those uh, workshops would well of course get to visit an amazing country and and then learn to to work uh, well, what it takes to to do work for an NGO and to prepare their create media for them and so on right Exactly. And to, and it's a great way to like connect with other peers as well, because yeah. there are some, you know, really talented people who come on our workshops um, and of all skill levels. Um, that's the kind of beautiful thing that we've been able to design in our workshops is that we can accept anyone of any level and they'll get something out of it just because of the way that we've benchmarked all of the different goals and tasks. All right. Great. We will put uh, links in the show notes to, to all of these, of course. But uh, I would like now to to talk about uh, one of your TEDx talks. You delivered a couple of them, and I'm referring to one that is titled Grassroots Narrative. And I will quote from the description just to introduce my question. So the description says, Through the still image, a new narrative takes us beyond mainstream media, shining a light on problems in remote corners of the world that have relevance to all of us. It's a future where we can point our camera lens towards the off the radar world. Uh, now, my question is, it's one thing to be able to point our cameras to that off the radar world. And nowadays it's become becoming easier and easier to travel, even even to, to remote destinations. But it's another thing to get our people, get people to see our images when we created them, when we are not mm-hmm. part of the mainstream media. So how do you think this grassroots narrative, as you call it, reach a large audience? 
I think that grassroots narratives are really important, first of all, because um, what I mean by that is is just the different stories that we don't see. So, for example, um, when we think of Africa um, and Africa, a lot of people mistake it for being one, a country, which it's not. It's a continent. Um, a lot of people will think uh, immediately, you know, of stereotypes like crisis and warfare and disease and all of these different things that don't represent what Africa really truly is um, and all of the diversity that exists within. But because because uh, the media tends to pick up on these really, you know, negative or, you know, timely kind of stories rather than like, you know, all of the different beautiful stories that exist. We tend to only see a very narrow painting or portrait of the world. Um, and so in my talk, I give examples of how, you know, like, for example, I was in uh, London when the London riots first, you know, kind of sparked and everyone I knew from Canada was just really worried about me constantly. And I was like, you know, I'm fine. Like I'm like staying away from the riots. I'm going to class every day. It's all good. Um, but the media can really misrepresent, I think a lot of issues. And of course my sister's a journalist. She works in the media and the mainstream media. So it's, it's, I, I have, I, I like to think I have a balanced perspective. Um, but I think when we're trying to pitch stories and pitch our grassroots narrative stories to the media or to um, bigger publishers, which we do often, uh, we have to find ways of making them relevant to either current events or to, um, you know, kind of like trending topics. So that's the kind of advice I would give to anyone who's trying to really um, shine a light on the grassroots narratives and issues that they're dealing with. Um, you know, you have to find ways of making them relevant or connecting them to other larger relevant issues. And that's just the unfortunate reality <laughs> of, um, of that. And in your talk, you also mentioned the Sumatran Wildlife Sanctuary, which I think you yes. already hinted at previously when you talked about Sumatra. Can you tell us more about that? And I saw, I mean, the, you, you showed at the end of the, the talk those images from the uh, that Sumatran forest that it's uh, being restored uh, in a way. And I found it very uh, heartwarming story, uh, even though I think that the, the threats to, to wildlife uh, in those places are still larger than, than we can probably hope to, to deal with at the moment. I don't know what's your take on this. Uh, well, the threats to wildlife and to our habitats, more importantly, are... Um all over the world, you know, and, and they're continually, continuously being exacerbated all over the world. Um, but especially in developing countries where, you know, a lot of, uh, pristine rainforests aren't valued properly. And so they become, they're very cheap to chop down and to start plantations on. Um, so the Sumatran wildlife sanctuary was the result of that trip. I did talk about earlier on when I went to with Gita, um, I was documenting her trip there, um, for our web series, called PWB TV. Uh, and we both fell in love with the project. And Gita is Indonesian. She's from uh, Sulawesi, which is a different island. So Indonesia is made up of 17,000 different islands. It's the largest archipelago in the world. So she's from Sulawesi. She'd never been to Sumatra, but we both fell in love with this project. We fell in love with the island. We fell in love with everything, the people that work there. So uh, one of the projects that we kind of started up um, before we left there um, with, with the founder and his blessing uh, was this idea of conserving land. So initially, we wanted just to 
create a little conservation area, you know, do our part and, and help to conserve by purchasing um, private land that would be converted to palm oil or other agricultural purposes otherwise. Um, so we started, like I, I told him I, I could probably afford to, to donate, you know, one hectare of land, which was about $7,000. Um, and then, you know, a few months later, I asked him, so have you found any land for us to purchase? And he said, yeah, I just found this amazing uh, land and it's there's 40 hectares of it. And I'm thinking 40 hectares, that's like, that's going to cost a lot of, a lot more than $7,000. Um, and so, but he was talking to us about how beautiful it was and he's so passionate and he really wanted to create like a wildlife rescue center. And, um, by the way, I'm talking about Panut Hedges Boyo. He's like an incredible conservation leader in this world. Um, and an expert on orangutans. Um, and he, yeah, so we kind of, me and Gita were just like, okay, I mean, if that's, what it's going to be, then that's what it's going to be. And so we endeavored from that moment on to raise money for this 40 hectare plot of land. And so we're about, I want to say we're about halfway there mm, almost. Um, so, but unfortunately the land is getting developed uh, really quickly. And so a lot has changed in the past few years. So if we don't raise this money pretty quickly, then um, there's the chance that part of it might get lost. I feel there's a tension there between the, the needs of a growing population. I mean, those mm-hmm. palm oil plantations, I guess they give work to people when this undeveloped forest doesn't. Um, so that there's definitely a tension there between the need of a developing country with a growing population. And what little I know about Indonesia is that it's developing fast. Population yes. is already quite uh, numerous and growing. And on the other hand, you have the needs of conservation because if we lose those habitats, we are every everybody is going to suffer in the long term. And I know this is like a, a million dollar question, right? How to solve the problems of the world, of a developing world and a growing population with the needs of the environment? So <laughs> I don't expect you to have the answer of that. If you if you had, you would probably have already won the Nobel Prize for <laughs> Peace and Economy at the same time. <laughs> Maybe you have some ideas. I don't know. Um, Well, I really do strongly believe that we need to work with local people. And I think for conservation, at least, um, as one goal. uh, So my other TED Talk is called Conservation. connection is the key to conservation so that's that's a good one to watch um talking about this because i think one of the biggest mistakes that conservationists have made in the past is is taking this approach this very colonialist approach where it's very top down there's not much you know um discussion with local local populations and so i think that palm oil for example um it is absolutely a really um it's turned the country around completely. So, I mean, we can't, we can't simply boycott palm oil, um, or hope to boycott palm oil and, and have that be like a silver bullet answer. And I think it would just take way too long and the forest would be gone before, you know, our boycotts took any effect because palm oil comes from all over the world. And we, when we label it on our products, we don't know where it's coming from. So there's a lot of issues with that, but at the same time on the local level, a lot of local populations are suffering um, because of the water uh, issue because palm oil plants do take up a lot of water. And so a lot of villages, small villages end up um, having to order water in from and, and 
have tanks at the side of their houses rather than, you know, um, taking from the river like they normally have for generations. So there are local repercussions of, of these palma plantations, which are coming to light. Um, and so I think that if we, if we, w- I think it's just about working together on a grassroots level. Like I, I can't, I can't express enough how important the grassroots um, community level development um, is so important rather than um, consistently approaching development from this five star top down level is, is I think one of the keys. I don't think again, like you said, like it would be a Nobel peace prize uh, answer, but uh, no, <laughs> to, no, to, to uh, solve that problem, but yeah, that's, uh, it's great what you say. I mean, yeah, completely understand the idea of, uh, conservation being pushed down the throats of, of the local populations from, from the top, then what you get is a pushback in the end. Absolutely. Right? You, get, Absolutely. you need to connect with those populations at the local level. I don't think there is any other solution. So yeah, I completely agree with you. There. And I think that relates to our work at Photographers Without Borders. And that's why I mentioned um, mm-hmm. why I think the school is so, PWB school is so important and why, um, our program is so important is because we're not just sending photographers blindly um, to do these assignments. Um, we're very cautious of, you know, um, like I said, the ethics around the stories that we're putting out, the narratives that we are um, encapsulating with our images or even with our commentary or our captions. You know, there's just there's so much good we can do and there's so much damage we can do. So it's just it's very important to be constantly aware of of what what picture we're painting. Yeah, yeah. All right. So for the last part of our interview, I'd like maybe to to touch on some uh, more light-hearted matters. So Yeah, okay, great. <laughs> you know, enough with the problems of the world. <laughs> <It's okay. laughs> I mean, these are important. I mean, these are the focus of your of your activity of your life. But uh, for let's talk about your your photography, your personal creative uh, endeavors and outlets. So t- tell us about your photography, what you like to photograph and why. I love telling stories. I can't say that enough. I am a storyteller through and through. I love people. And I think that portraiture is one of my strongest suits. Uh, so I just really gravitate towards people, their stories, uh, and just bearing witness to some of the difficulties of humanity that people have gone through. Um, I think that for me, I'm just very, I'm very uh, touched by most people. I think everyone has a really amazing story, whether they realize it or not. And it's my job as a photographer and as a storyteller to, to get to know people really quickly. And I think it's also my gift as uh, someone who can speak so many languages as someone, I think that, um, I, you know, because I, I mixed, you know, as, as much as it caused me issues when I was young, it has been a real blessing to me in this work. Um, I can really blend really easily into different situations. So I feel like for me, I really just love being a fly on the wall. I love to listen to people. I love, um, really taking in all of the little details and then producing, portraiture and documentary photography that I think reflects like an honest uh, portrayal of different situations. Um, And I love, I'm really influenced by, you know, Renaissance painters like Da Vinci, you know, with the chiaroscuro, with the way that I paint light with my photos. And that's, that's, I guess, in a nutshell, 
yeah. what I love. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's important again what you you said about uh, languages. I mean, you're you're lucky, or you're. I mean, it's not luck, but in part, but at least you you made the effort to learn so many languages, so being able to connect with the people in the countries that you go to on a, on a deeper level than is just the one of the. Uh, snapper it just goes around without any concern for the local customs and culture can't speak a single word or doesn't doesn't even make the effort at times to to mm-hmm. learn a few words of the local language and uh, creates this this image of the entitled western photographer who goes to this country like they go to a zoo and photograph the the local color and customs and so on without much understanding of it so yeah mm-hmm. kudos to you again for that uh okay so we're almost at the end of our allotted time i would just like to ask you one more question uh, that i've recently started asking uh, all of my guests uh, what i call a, a discovery question and it's a very Ooh. open-ended one <laughs> uh, <laughs> take your time to answer it you might think about it and the question is what drives you crazy Ooh. Okay, let me think about this for a second. Sure. <laughs> what drives me crazy is knowing that to every action there's a reaction. And so, you know, certain things that happen on the world stage or in the world, you know, it feels like it's taking us backwards sometimes, uh, you know, especially those of us who are working in activism and trying to, you know, progress human rights and equality and all of that, which is a very difficult and trauma, you know, it's, a, it's it, there's so much in- transgenerational trauma and people that, you know, whose lives are at stake. Um, as a result of some of the actions that have been taken. And, mm-hmm. you know, that drives me crazy because to some people, to some pr- privileged people, and I guess privilege drives me crazy too sometimes when people don't use their privilege in a way that benefits the greater good. Um, yeah, and I know we can't expect people to, I, we can't expect people to, but I also think there's a certain responsibility in being given so much privilege um, and that, to some people who aren't aware of, you know, the experiences of others, it can really have an impact um, on people who are already struggling. And so that really drives me crazy because, you know, here we are trying to make our little tiny, like, you know, move the world like a centimeter or an inch forward. And then, you yeah. know, it feels like you get taken back and, you know, these policies that are so important keep getting repealed or time is spent on things that don't really matter and, and, attention is spent on on things that don't matter like you know certain twitter feeds and that that's that's enough to drive anyone mad i can understand yeah i can totally (laughs) (laughs) absolutely no this was a bit of a thought-provoking question just to to get you to i like it it's good good okay great (laughs) so uh finally where can people find more about you and uh, photographers without borders online Absolutely. So uh, Photographers Without Borders is pretty easy to find online if you just Google us. Uh, and we're photographerswithoutborders.org, Photographers Without Borders on Facebook, and on Twitter, we're PhotographersWB, Instagram, Photographers Without Borders. And myself, I'm Danielle Da Silva, and Da Silva is D-A-S-I-L-V-A. Good. We will put links to to that in our episode post uh, together with links to your TEDx talks which I recommend I still have to to watch the second one of uh, that you mentioned about uh, I wasn't aware of that so I still have to watch it and I will do it now um, so thanks for pointing that out and mentioning enjoy that. have fun <laughs> 
it was uh, the first one it was was great so yeah very very inspiring so yeah um thanks for your time i know you're busy so i don't want to uh abuse of it too much i think we have a we had a great and stimulating and thought-provoking conversation today so i'm really really thankful to you for that is there anything else you, you would like to add before we close Oh, I just want to say thank you to you for having me on the show. And uh, it's been wonderful. And I really enjoyed thought-provoking questions. Okay, you're welcome. And take care and goodbye. Take care.